And welcome to an episode of Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. I'm your host, Darren Fatman McDuffie, and tonight we are, are going to have a great episode. Been looking forward to discussing uh, stomach acid with this gentleman for a very long time, and it just so happens that we are doing it on a Friday, Friday at 8:30 my time, which you know you have to be dedicated and love what you're doing in order to do a show on Friday when everybody else is out being social. And it's a rainy, soggy Friday in South Florida where I am here in uh, Fort Lauderdale, but never know mine. I love what I do. I'm very passionate about what I'm, what I do and looking forward to bringing you another great show. Before we get into the show tonight, just want to remind you of a Wednesday show with uh, Dr. Kayla T. Daniel. We talked about nourishing broth. If you are not up on bone broth, What are you waiting for? We talked about the benefits, bone broth, how easy it is to make. And actually, after that episode, I ended up going and making me a crock pot full of bone broth, which I intend to fully partake in over the coming next days. So, again, go back and listen to that episode with Dr. Kayla T. Daniel called Nourishing Broth, and hopefully you will enjoy it. Tonight, we have Dr. Jonathan Wright, and we are talking about a subject, uh, his book called Why Stomach Acid is Good for You. Really looking forward to this discussion. have a lot of questions. I'm sure we probably won't get to all of them. I never get to all of my questions when I am have a guest on the show, but hopefully we'll get the meat of everything, so to speak, so you can get a good idea about why stomach acid is good for you. Dr. Jonathan Wright, welcome to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. Well, thank you, sir. Well, good to have you, man. I've been really looking forward to this show. Um, Read the book, went through the book, and have some really good questions for you. And I'm sure the audience out there is going to be thoroughly enlightened when it comes to stomach acid. But before we get into asking you the questions, I usually ask my guests about their background, their story, what happened, and why they are where they are right now. So if you could share your story with us, that'll be a great help. Well, I can't go back to prior lifetimes, sir, so if I had any, that is. So uh, where would you like to go back in this one, too? Well, you're a medical doctor, which I, I know that from doing some research on you and getting prepared for the show. Tell us about that, but more specifically, you chose to take what I would call a, a different route, as, as most medical doctors uh, are classically trained, but you chose to go more into the natural section of um, helping people from a medical standpoint. Why did you do that? Well, I certainly didn't learn it in medical school, sir. I went to the University of Michigan, and mm-hmm. they were just about the same as all the other medical schools, teaching you how to use surgery, which has its place, and patent medicines, which don't, um, that kind of stuff. So after I got out of medical school, or I should say escaped, um, that's sometimes more appropriate, though, you know, for getting out of school is escaping. And they decided I should have that MD. Um, as you know, we're all supposed to do internships and residencies for different special areas. And I, de- I decided on family medicine. And at the time... There were only three residency programs in that in all the United States. There was one in Florida, which I didn't go to, darn it. (laughs) Yeah, you missed out. I sure did. And there was another one in Texas. And the last one was up here in rainy Washington State. So what what am I doing here in rainy Washington State? Well, those other two in Florida and Texas, they, they had you spending three years inside a hospital. And one thing I knew that family doctors did not do is spend all their time in hospitals. And the one up here was half and half, hospital and out in the clinics and stuff, and that seemed more more like what family doctors might do. So anyway, that's how come I'm getting rained on so much, sir, and you get all the sunshine, but that's another story. Um, About the second year of that residency program, a lady came in with a book. Um, 
sometimes people do, you know. You've got to sit out there and wait for your doctor to arrive. The only mm-hmm. other way I know of making the doctor uh, or the dentist show up quicker is to go to the bathroom, and then they always show up, you know, when you're in the bathroom. But, <laughs> hey, you can get that to work. Try it out sometime. Yeah. Um, anyway, she brought that book in, and uh, she just had one question to ask me. You know, I had read through a record, and, oh, my goodness, her problem was a terrific case of just cramps and cramps and cramps in her legs and everything had been tried all the patent medicines and they'd even tried a couple of natural ones they had the sense to use calcium and potassium and all that and magnesium and none of that worked and the patent medicines didn't work and she's up to her ears in quinine and the reason I said up to, up to your ears is it makes your ears ring if you take enough quinine mm-hmm. and that does have the capability of stopping cramps but she couldn't she, she said she didn't like that quinine and that's why she had this book to show me and right in that book, it said why vitamin E occasionally stops leg cramps. And uh, I said, well, but you know, you can get vitamin E down to your local national food store. How come you're in here? I was more polite than that, but that's the summary. She says, well, now remember, this is 1971. And she says, well, uh, the, the Food and Drug Administration tells us we're going to kill ourselves if we take too much fat-soluble vitamin. You know, they were saying that back then, and they're still saying it to a degree now. And she says, I want to make sure I'm not going to kill myself if I take that vitamin E. I said, ma'am, I I don't know much about those vitamins. In medical school, they gave us a whole hour on nutrition and vitamins, a whole hour. The whole time, four years we were there. And they did say about the vitamins, they said they go A, B, C, D, E, and that way you can look them up easy, and they went on the next topic. Um. But one thing I did know is nobody had ever uh, recorded a death from taking vitamin E. She says, oh, good, I feel better. And she got up to go. That's all she wanted to know. And I asked her, well, if you try it, would you please give us a call here, call me, call the assistant out front, let us know if it worked. She says, look, I looked through a record and everything had been tried and nothing had worked. Okay, well, she was really one of those um, teachers in disguise. You, you've had those two in your lifetime, I'm sure. You don't yes, think I have. Until later, they're supposed to teach you something. Yeah. Yep. And uh, she called back. I, I never did see her again in person, but she called back. It's kind of her. About six weeks later, and said, "Tell that doctor that I flushed all of that quinine and all those other patent medicines down the toilet," which, of course, wasn't too kind of the fish, but that was 1971. Um, and I haven't had a leg cramp for three weeks now, and that's just the first time in years. And I thought to myself, uh-huh, you know, uh, I better get a copy of that book. And I'd had the good sense to make a, make a co- uh, to write down the title and the author. And uh, Darren, I bet you can guess who it might be, because you've heard this name. The author was Adele Davis. She was a real famous author. Uh, author in the 50s, 60s, and 70s on vitamins and minerals and stuff. So uh-huh. I went out and got her book, and sure enough, there's the part about the vitamins and leg cramps, but there's all this other stuff in there with footnotes to the scientific literature so I could go look it up, which, you know, they teach you you're supposed to do in medical school. Look it up first. Okay, that's fine. Um, all this other stuff about what we could do with the vitamins and minerals. Okay. I'll shut up shortly about this, but because um, I am going on. Uh, but the next time somebody came in with a problem that hadn't been s- solved by everything we could think of uh, in regular medicine, I said, "Excuse me, uh, I'll be back in a couple minutes." <laughs> I went next in the next room where I'd put the book. You know, you can't you can't <laughs> can't show the people you're working with. You got to look stuff up. You're supposed to be the all yeah. doctor, you know. Uh-huh. And uh, I went in there and looked up her problem. And right in there, Adele Davis wrote, well, you know, vitamin B6 handles that problem quite nicely. Okay, and Adele included the scientific reference, which I couldn't look up right then, but I knew she wouldn't have it in there unless it said that. Unless it said that. So I went out and told this lady, well, you could try some vitamin B6. She says, could you give me some? I says, I'm sorry. It's not on our formulary here, and we're only allowed, quote-unquote, to give out stuff that's in the formulary or give out prescriptions for it, that is. You'll have to go to your local natural food store, but it isn't expensive. Well, she did. And I asked her the same thing. Let us know if it works. 
Well, she called back to doggone it, it had taken care of her problem. At that point, Daryl, I decided that I had this giant big hole in my medical education that had been left out because there's all these references in Adele Davis's book. So I started spending a whole heck of a lot of time up at the library and learning there's all this stuff we could do with molecules that actually belong in our bodies, which is probably a hell of a lot safer than a patent medicine. Now, folks, I keep calling them patent medicines. Other people call them drugs, and the companies like to call like to call them pharmaceuticals because that sounds so much better. But you know, they're just patented molecules. And why is that important? Because otherwise, they can't charge a thousand dollars a pill for them. That's why. Um, which they're doing these days, not in the 70s, because um, you got a patent on it. And to patent something, law says you can't patent a natural molecule, which, by the way, is why medicine's been going in the wrong direction for the last 100 years, ever since the Flexner Report and so-called scientific stuff and the big patent medicine companies starting to patent molecules, and that's all they taught the doctors. Not the doctor's fault, that's all they get taught. Um because you can sell those for big bucks. Yeah, I wanted to... Patent medicines, because they are patent medicines, and I'll set up now. Yeah, that's um, why I wanted to... Uh, I want to kind of ask you a question about that a little bit later, but um, I found out a lot about this when I was in the pharmaceutical industry um, way back when, about the patents and how to extend a patent, what they do to extend the <laughs> patent. It's, yep. it's, it's a whole ball game out there of what goes on in order to to make money but getting into the book why stomach acid is good for you one of the ironic things about your title is the fact that we've been taught through marketing through tv through just about everything that we have too much stomach acid but that's not the truth the truth is we don't have enough stomach acid i wanted you to talk about that especially with with um conditions like GERD and heartburn. Heartburn is probably the most common one because most people at some point in life have, have experienced heartburn. But um, talk about that a little bit in regards to just the stomach acid and how we've been kind of manipulated to think that we might be getting too much stomach acid. Well, for sure, sir. And thank you for bringing it up, Darren. I appreciate it. Um, GERD is just initials G-E-R-D for gastric esophageal reflux disease, which is the same as heartburn. And mm-hmm. we can't call it heartburn, though. Do you know why doctors have to make up fancy names and doctors and lawyers have to use Latin and Greek terms, Darren? Yeah, so uh, they can make it seem more complicated than what it really is. There's that, and that's very important. But the second reason is so we can charge more. Mm-hmm. Hey, you can't mm-hmm. charge you can't charge less if you just speak in plain English. You gotta use fancy language. Kind of like when I go to see my mechanic. Oh my gosh, I don't understand the engines and motors, and he says all this stuff. I can't understand understand a damn thing. So yeah. I figure he's worth what he's charging, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just like uh, the uh, mechanics and, and lawyers. Lawyers speak as well. Yeah, there you go. So anyway, they are the same thing, and what it means is acids coming up from the stomach into the esophagus. Now, the stomach is so well built that it can stand an amount of acid that if you ever were able to do this and stand the pain, if you stuck your stomach in, clear down into your finger, uh, your finger clear down into your stomach, I got that one backwards there, mm-hmm. your finger down clear down to the stomach, and if you could stand the pain, you'd pull up bone in an hour. No kidding. That acid is so strong. Um, but the stomach can stand it. But the esophagus, the tube on down there that pops the food into the stomach, hey, that doesn't have resistance to that kind of acid. So how come we're not heartburning and girding all the time? Well, there's this little valve at the bottom of the esophagus, and it shuts, uh-huh. and it keeps the acid from coming back. Now, here's a clue, Darren. Do you know what makes that, that valve shut? And what what allows it to stay open? No, I do not. Well, some researchers, smart guys, they figured it out. What makes that valve close is it says acid. Mm-hmm. No kidding. When when we eat the food, the valve head comes on open because here comes the food. It plops in the stomach, and then that valve goes, Kong! 
inches or so. As soon as the stomach starts making the acid to digest the food with, with the help of an enzyme called pepsin, that's real important too, to digest the food. As soon as that acid-pepsin mixture bumps into the stomach of that sphincter, if we happen to be 16 years old with good, healthy digestion, you ever hear of a 16-year-old having heartburn? Uh-uh. No. Or GERD? No. You just don't. I mean, when we're 16, particularly us guys, can eat half the contents of the refrigerator, and <laughs> we do not get heartburn. We just yep. don't. Because that valve is going and protecting it from the acid from coming back up. But when we get older, the stomach acid frequently drops lower than optimal. And what's optimal? Optimal is what a 16-year-old's got. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, now back in 1932, a physician and her group from the Mayo Clinic, no less, and you know what Mayo Clinic and Harvard says, it, it's got to be true, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, yes. sometimes, yeah, we know that sometimes. But anyway, back then, she and her group published a study on some 3,400 people. Now, they didn't do that study on the same day. Of course, they did it over time. And what have they done? They had pumped out the stomachs and checked the acidity for those 3,400 people. No kidding. And they checked the quantity of acid, too, of course. And they did it for people from ages 20 or 20, forget which, all the way up to age 60. And they separated into five years here, every five years, 25, 25, 30, uh, 30, 35, et cetera, et cetera. And the last group was 55, 60. And what they found is that folks in their 20s had very few cases of suboptimal acid in the stomach and not enough to really digest things well. But by the time we all get to be 60, Darren, according to that Mayo Clinic research, 50% of us have suboptimal acid made by the stomach. What's going on here? What's the disease? Well, it isn't a disease. What happens to ladies in their 40s and 50s? Uh-oh, the ovaries switch off. There goes the menstrual periods. Um, what happens to guys when we get in our 40s and 50s? Oh, the testicles don't switch off, but they start dropping off in their production of testosterone. Well, I'm sorry, but that's just life. As we get older, things slow down. And, yes, if we take care of ourselves from the time we're young adults, we can postpone that day quite remarkably well. But how many of us have been taught to take care of ourselves? Uh, we're not really. We're taught, oh, well, I've got a problem. Go off to the doctor. And the doctor's been taught, hey, give him patent medicines, or I'm not going to put down surgeries. Sometimes we need surgeries. Um, but we've not been taught that if we're going to take care of our health, we've got to be responsible for ourselves. So anyway, by the time we're 60, according to this study from the Mayo, at least half of us have some suboptimal stomach acid, and guess what? That can occur any time in one's 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, although it increases with age. And when that acid drops to a certain level, there isn't enough of it to shut that valve, and uh-oh, here comes heartburn. Now, our GERD. And that's not the only thing that causes heartburn and GERD, but it is, as the book points out, the major thing. It's just simply suboptimal acid. Well, Darren, how much money, how many, how many bucks are we going to make on telling people to go down to the health food store and buy one of seven competing brands, because you can't patent it, of hydrochloric acid and pepsin? How much money are we going to make on that? Well, we're going to make a lot of money. I wanted to ask you that as well as, you know, how much is the pharmaceutical or the pharmaceutical companies actually making off the different medications that are out there for heartburn and GERD? You know, I haven't looked up the prices lately, but as you know, unfortunately, it's all, quote, covered by insurance, unquote, the patent medicines. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say unfortunately is that way we don't get hit direct with the pain. It's indirect because it comes out of the premiums we're all paying. Now, I do know one thing, and that is that the ones that are still under patent protection are over 100 bucks a prescription, and you can get the same quantity or a quantity that will last just as long of the natural item. It's called betaine hydrochloride, and all it is 
is a molecule that doesn't release the hydrochloric acid till it gets down to the stomach rather than on your tongue or something, which we wouldn't want. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's got some pepsin in it. And that stuff is, uh, depending on your length of supply, it's anywhere between, or your days of supply of it, it's anywhere between 15 and maybe 30 bucks a bottle. And on the other hand, if you get a prescription, oh, you didn't have to pay for it. Ha ha, sure you did. It's in all your premiums. And it's over 100 bucks a bottle. So it's at least three to four times the price of the natural stuff. And by the way, does it help you with your digestion? Because remember, if we've got suboptimal digestion, there's not enough acid to trigger the closure of that valve. Um, there's also not enough acid accompanied by pepsin to properly break down the food supply. And so we don't get the nutrients out like we should. And that's another component of aging. Stomach acid goes suboptimal. We don't get as many as we did when we were younger of the amino acids and the vitamins and all the stuff that our food's supposed to be digested into. Um, so anyway, it's going to speed up aging because of that, too. Yeah. But it sounds... To, oh, you go ahead, sir. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say, it, it sounds like a um, self-perpetuating cycle that the low stomach acid and then you're not getting the nutrients from your food, which causes more conditions. I wanted to ask you about a couple of myths that might, because I've heard this ever since I was a child. <laughs> and you mentioned that as we age, our stomach acid production declines. Um, one of the things that I've heard is don't drink, uh, don't drink with your meals. Cause, and I'm wondering if that has something to do with, the stomach acid is that depleting our stomach acid or not get, having it work as effectively. And the other part of that question is, are we overusing our digestion? Because it was a point where when we were way back when we were not constantly eating, you know, you hunted something, you killed it, you ate it, and then you may go, a day or two without a full meal. But now it just seems like we're constantly eating all the time. Every social gathering that we're at, there's food and there's just food in plentiful supply. Are we overusing our digestion? And again, it's, does water affect that stomach acid production or drinking with our meals? Okay. Uh, let's go back to that 16-year-old if we could. Okay. That 16-year-old stomach can make so much acid but even if we drink three glasses of water with that meal, the stomach stomach is going to just keep pumping out the acid until the pH, that's the acid-alkaline balance, as most people know, but for the one person who doesn't, it's the acid-alkaline balance, until the pH is down to a pH of 2 that's highly acid. It's not quite as, as acid as battery acid, but almost. And the stomach can just keep pumping it out, pumping it out, pumping it out when we're 16. Now, the older we get, the more likely it is we're going to have a suboptimal stomach acid. But let's go to the other side of the picture. The Mayo Clinic folks said 50% have suboptimal at age 60. Hey, that means that 50% have optimal at age 60, not suboptimal. So the people who are suboptimal shouldn't be drinking so much water, sorry, because the stomach can't keep pumping out the acid to reduce the pH properly. But the people who have perfectly normal stomach acid don't have to worry about it as much. So that is depends on the individual's own stomach acid production, whether they should drink more or less water with meals. And one of the ways you can tell your stomach isn't making so much acid is that old heartburn of those people because, you know, it doesn't trigger the closure of the valve. And so those people shouldn't be drinking much water with meals or much fluid. You're absolutely right there in that category can identify themselves. Now, on the other one about overusing our digestion, well, the same old thing that I just said. Those who got optimal stomach acid production can eat half the contents of the refrigerator and they're still going to digest good. So, same answer. Um, if you're having heartburn, uh-uh. I wouldn't be putting so much burden on the stomach. If you're not and things don't seem to just sit in your stomach and not digest right and give the other symptoms such as burping and belching and constipation, then you can probably handle it. And sooner or later, we're all going to get old enough. We don't have we don't have optimal stomach function. I bet you, if the Mayo Clinic had continued to age 100, they would have found a bigger percentage than 50. Mm-hmm. 
Um, you mentioned a vow. I'm going to assume that that's the lower esophageal sphincter. Yes. Sir. And it, yeah, in in the book you talk you said about most of the time it's not a stomach acid problem. It could be a muscle problem. But I'm thinking that from what you're saying, these two things work in tandem. Like there has to be enough acid in the stomach in order for that uh, sphincter, lower esophageal sphincter, to kind of get the message that, hey, we need to close up. So there you go. Am, I correct, am I correct in saying that? Yes, you are, sir. Absolutely. And so one of the things is that the stuff that we're given, the patent medicines that we're given, if we're foolish enough to take them, have a bad habit of shutting off the stomach acid completely. So there's no acid to flow through and give you heartburn. But excuse me, that is one of the world's best ways to get to get malnutrition because now we for sure can't digest the protein and get the minerals out and so forth. And, Darren, there is by now a list of problems that happen to people who've been taking those type of patent medicines, the acid blockers, for longer than just very occasional use. Uh, let's see, there's more pneumonia, there's more osteoporosis, there's more dementia. Uh, the list goes on and on of all the conditions that happen more in people who take acid-blocking medication than in people who don't. Mm-hmm. And um, another thing I wanted to ask you about that is you see I don't want to break this into a male-female issue, but sometimes it seems as though different things affect the sexes um, really different. With women, you see a lot of women who have issues with their gallbladder. I'm wondering if that low stomach acid production has anything to do with the gallbladder issues because the stomach and the gallbladder are kind of like cousins to each other. They're kind of located mm-hmm. near each other in the body. So can that low stomach acid production contribute to gallbladder issues? And I'm going to load this question up as well. <laughs> uh, and also, you're seeing a lot of women, too, who have SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And you don't see that as much in men. Is, it, is that the same thing, that, that low stomach acid production is contributing to these types of things as well? Okay. Well, I'm going to start with the gallbladder one because that's one of my favorite topics, Darren. Yeah. It has nothing to do with stomach acid, and this comes straight from a book that was written by the chair. We can't call him chairman anymore if we live out here in Seattle. We have to say chairperson, so I just say chair. Anyway, the chair of the Food Allergy Committee of the American College of Allergists. Now, who could be a better expert on this topic than the chair of the Food Allergy Committee of the American College of Allergists? And his name was James Brenneman. And if you want to, you can look this one up. I just love it when you can look it up. He has an entire chapter in that book on what causes gallbladder attacks. It's food allergies. He did a study of over 60 people who were having gallbladder attacks. And some of them, a few of them, five or six, had already had their gallbladders out, and they're still having gallbladder attacks. And that's called post-gallbladder attack syndrome, or if you want to put it in Latin Greek so we can charge more, it's called post-cholecystectomy syndrome. Oh, after your gallbladder got cut out is what that's for. All right. And all these people, he had them tested for food allergy, and every one of them, I'm not kidding, 100%, quit having gallbladder attacks. Just quit. No more gallbladder attacks. And then for the sake of science, he says, would you please eat those foods again? And doggone it, every one of them said he started having gallbladder attacks again. So they, and this is 100%, you don't get many 100% in medicine. So they went off the foods again, and all the gallbladder attacks went away. Darren, since I read his book, which was first published in 78 or 79, I have not had to refer one person for gallbladder surgery. They come on in. They've been having gallbladder attacks. Okay, allergy test time. Find out what they're allergic to. Take them off it, or they take themselves off it, excuse me. And they don't have any more gallbladder attacks. It just works like a charm. I calculated one time, Darren, uh, by using statistics from the CDC, that a few years ago there was some $15 bucks being spent on gallbladder, removing gallbladders for gallbladder attacks. Most of the charge was the hospital charge and the surgery charge and then there's doctor charge and blah, blah, blah. And then I calculated how much it would cost to do allergy tests on all these people. 
know, the insurance premiums, the taxes, whatever the savings would be from that $15 billion, not million now, billion, would be $1.5 billion. And we'd save $13.5 billion just by paying attention to Dr. Brenneman. I am not kidding. I haven't had to refer anybody. Now, there's the rare occasion when a person who has a gallstone gets it stuck in the gallbladder duct, and that hurts like heck. And, of course, not eating your food allergies isn't going to fix that. But that's rare. And as Brenneman said, the usual thing is you're allergic to things. And I'll shut up on this after saying that the number one thing that caused it, in Dr. Brenneman's experience, over 90% were allergic to eggs, chicken eggs. Mm. And then he went down the percentages in his book, and there was uh, chocolate was 50% and so forth. So I'm not saying just one thing causes gallbladder attacks. Most people are allergic to several things, eggs usually on the list, that's going to cause a gallbladder attacks. So since that's not what this is all about, but it's a useful thing to throw in for people, let's go over the other question, and that is the stomach and the small intestinal overgrowth. Yes. Uh, yes, stomach acid contributes to that quite a bit. Because one of the other jobs that stomach acid has is to inhibit the growth of non-friendly bacteria and of molds and yeasts. Um, and if we got robust stomach acid like a 16-year-old or a, a really healthy 60-year-old, that means the pH, which again everybody knows is alkaline balance, acid alkaline balance, it's going to be shifted more to inhibit the bad guy germs. But if we got low stomach acid, those bad guy germs can take advantage and say, oh, goody, it isn't as acid around here. Let's grow. So you're right about that. Mm-hmm. Um, this is just a question that came to me, um, and I wanted to ask because I'm just like that, and when things come to me, Weight loss surgery, and every every time I'm in my car, sometimes I hear a commercial on the radio about lap a lap band procedure where they uh, clamp off the stomach or gastric bypass, you know, for weight loss. Does yeah, yeah, does that inhibit um, stomach acid production? Well, let's take the second one. Gastric bypass is just what it sounds like. It's a bypass. It goes around the stomach, and excuse me. How is the stomach going to be in contact with food to make acid to digest it? That is what is called, among other things, foolishness. But another thing it's called is short-term gain, long-term pain. And I don't mean an actual knife stick in any. What I mean is it's just the same as the effect of those acid blockers. Oh, excuse me, I'm not digesting my food as good anymore, and so I'm just going to die of something sooner that was caused by the malnutrition that this weight loss surgery caused. Good grief. Yeah, it just seems like a lot of people who have their surgery, they start looking like they don't look too well after having the surgery for for a while. They start looking really malnourished, so to speak. Well, they are. It's kind of like having your brain removed and then hoping you can think afterwards. You have your stomach bypassed and you, you, you hope you can digest as good as you should. Yeah, it doesn't. It just doesn't make sense. And I've always wondered about that. That's why I wanted to ask you: <clears throat> Does it, you know, hinder people when they do have that that surgery? And I guess you answer my question that it it does because you know it it really affects that you know the stomach acid production. Yep, it does. Um, speaking about the stomach, what is the optimal pH for the stomach? You said it's really really acidic. At optimal, when everything's fully digested, is a pH of 2. Um, now, bloodstream, they tell us the pH it ought to be several times higher for good health. should be maybe 6.5, maybe 7. There's debate among doctors for that. But uh, for those few who don't know, 6.5 uh, to 7 is not just 4 points or or um, I'm sorry, 4, four to 4.5 four points more than 2. From two to three is a tenfold. From three to four is another tenfold. From four to five, etc. So that's a real big order of magnitude difference. It's not just a few point difference. So the blood is mm, supposed to be slightly alkaline to be healthy, but our stomachs are really an exception. They 
it got to be as acid as heck to get everything digested. And just for fun, Darren, guess which species of uh, living critter has the strongest stomach acid, according to researchers, too? Um, <clears throat> I'm going to say it's something that it has to be something that eats meat. <laughs> I, alligator? Right track. Some type of alligator or something like that, because I would think that they no, are. No, no, no. I'll give you a clue. It's something that flies. Oh, I know this, but I can't think. <laughs> I'm on the air. My brain tends to go. I don't know. Just tell me. I, I can't think. It's vultures. Vultures. Oh, yeah. That's buzzards. Buzzards because they eat there you dead go. carcasses. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Down carcasses all the time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When we talk about these medications, Prevacid, there's a ton of them out there. I'm, I've been out of pharmaceutical since 2000, 2001 or something. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah, I tell people that was the dark side of my career, but <laughs> but <laughs> so. and I, I woke up, I came into the light. When we think about these medications, and you think about the, the the fact that a lot of people depend on these on a daily basis to get rid of heartburn anytime they eat something. If you pull someone off of these and you look at a more natural means of really helping them increase their stomach acid production, how long does it take to swing that around? Okay, well, it, so far I have not discovered a reliable way of increasing the stomach acid. I hope there is one out I'll find someday. But doing that is just about as just about to be as lucky as a woman uh, turning her ovaries back on after 45 to 55 years of age, and guys uh, ramping up their testosterone again after that same age. Um, yeah, I suppose there's some things guys can do, but the way nature has designed ladies, for example, uh-uh, ovaries should switch off, they just permanently switch off. So what do we do? Well, if we're going to live as healthy as we can, as long, as long as we can, we use something called bioidentical hormone replacement, which, uh, for what it's worth, um, the clinic where I work, Tahoma Clinic, well, we put together comprehensive bioidentical hormone replacement, the first in all of North America in 1983. And I could go into a long thing about that, but I won't. I'll just just mention that. Lots of ladies are now using bioidentical hormone replacement, and they do stay healthier for longer, and there's research on that, how effective and safe it is, and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, getting back to stomach, switching that back on is tough, too, just like switching back on a lady's ovaries. So all the health food stores have these capsules that contain what's called betaine hydrochloride with pepsin and there's different brands of it and so it keeps the cost down and so forth and it's all natural well once a person starts taking that and they ramp it up to whatever the doctor says because really it's a good idea to be working with a doctor skilled and knowledgeable in natural medicine if you're using hydrochloric acid pepsin because occasionally stuff can give you stomach burn if you use too much you ought to be working with the doctor on that. But anyway, once a person does, my goodness, they, they get to the adequate amount of stomach acid, and bingo, they frequently don't have stomach acid, uh, heartburn. I said that wrong. Lack of stomach acid caused heartburn within a week. I'm not kidding you. Mm-hmm. And that's why that book that Dr. Lane Leonard and I wrote, it wasn't just me, he wrote it too. That book was first published in 2001, here it is 2016, and it's still in print. Because people are finding it so useful, they pass it along to their friends, pass it along to their friends. Now, I don't want to give everybody the wrong idea. The cause of heartburn is mostly low stomach acid. But I've heard people tell me, hey, I just gave up the beer and the caffeine and the alcohol, and what do you know, I quit having heartburn. Yep, that works for some people. And I know of other people who says I quit eating all the gluten-containing food and I quit having heartburn. So sometimes there's other causes. It's not just the low stomach acid, but it is mostly the low stomach acid that causes those problems. Yeah. For those of us who are, I'm over 40. For those of us, you, I think you said even over 20, 20, 30 into our 40s, would you recommend us using those um, pills? I've used those pills before. I, ha- I, I don't use them on a, a regular basis. But would you recommend a person taking those pills when they, you know, before they eat, just to to maybe supplement their stomach acid production? Okay. Well, one thing we never want to do is take them right before we eat because if the phone rings and you go off and answer the phone and it's the grandkids and you want to talk to them or something like that, 
or your daughter, um, that acid's going to be sitting there all by itself, and it just might cause a little burning pain. So wait till you put the food in the stomach first before you try it. And then after that, what I tell folks is, look, you ought to be working with a doctor who's skilled and knowledgeable in medicine. There is a test that can tell you precisely how much stomach acid is being made. It's a challenge test, and you watch on the computer screen. The pH goes up after the challenge, and it goes right down again within 20 minutes if your stomach's making enough acid. So there is a test that can be done. But for those who want to be brave, um, keep keep a, keep some bicarb handy just in case you get some burn in the stomach. Um, mm-hmm. And the ones who want to be brave here who feel, well, there's just something not where I write about my digestion. I think I want to try this stuff. Well, okay, eat a little food, take one, and do that for a couple of days. And if that doesn't uh, seem to help anything, go to two, uh, a couple of days, go to three, and if you need to, Maybe go to four, but I never, ever would go past that without checking with the doc on whether that's right for me. And the second thing to say about this is some people do that and just one pill and it burns. And then they come out of the clinic and we find out their stomach acid is perfectly normal. Huh? But what's happened, I'm sorry, their stomach acid is perfectly abnormal. Oh, did I say that wrong? I sure did. Yeah. Stomach acid is perfectly abnormal. In other words, they don't have any. It is possible to develop a state where there is no acid in the stomach. Zero. It's called achlorhydria if you want to get charged more. Achlorhydria just means no stomach acid. Okay. And but they just take one pill and it burns. Why is that? Have you have you seen that, Doctor Wright, where someone doesn't oh, yeah. have any stomach acid? Wow. Oh yes, sir. Wow. Absolutely. It's not so they're not, they're, they're not, not breaking down their food at all. Well, not with stomach acid. Very fortunately, there's a second phase of digestion where the pancreatic enzymes come into the intestine uh-huh. and start digesting stuff. But they're not breaking it down from the acid point of view. No way. Yeah, wow. that does happen. So anyway, if a person has that, they could take one pill and it's going to burn. Why? Because by the time we get to, to uh, no stomach acid... It's just as if we had a very weak muscle because we hadn't been ex- able to exercise for a long, long time. Let's may say maybe an injury or something we couldn't exercise. And then we try to go out and exercise hard, and, oh, my God, this muscle hurts because we haven't been able to exercise it for the last three months, and so we overdid it. Well, same deal with the stomach that is making acid. It's atrophied. It's literally shrunk. It's atrophied. And just like, uh, for example, for ladies after after menopause, sometimes, oh, my goodness, sex hurts, and it didn't used to hurt before. Well, that's because that tissue is atrophied, and that's easily fixed with bioidentical hormones. And the stomach that isn't making acid, though, we have a six-part, um, well, it's called in medicine a protocol, and in English that just means a list of things that people can do. It takes about six, eight weeks of just doing those things in between meals to help get the stomach um uh, toned up a little. It doesn't bring the acid back. I wish it would, but it makes it a little stronger. And after those six weeks, oh, now I can take my hydrochloric acid. It doesn't burn a bit. And six weeks ago, it burned me. Well, that happens with the no stomach acid people, not with the average person who's got some some stomach acid because they got some, and if it doesn't hurt all the time, then they can usually tolerate a little more. I had two more questions for you. I wanted to be respectful of your time here. Uh, telltale signs of low stomach acid, is gas and bloating two of those telltale signs? Because I know a lot of people have gas and a lot of people have bloating. Yes, it's a gas and bloating combination in the upper abdomen. It's like where you can put your hand over your stomach right between your ribs. If that's where mm-hmm. the gas and bloating is, that's a telltale sign. Okay. Uh, the gas, if the bloating is mostly lower abdomen, that's a different story. Okay, so Another one that I hear a lot about is if I eat a big meal, or if I eat heavy protein, it just kind of feels like it sits in my stomach and doesn't want to get digested. Uh-huh. That's another telltale sign. Now, I got one for the ladies who are before menopause. Um, this doesn't seem to apply to the men. I don't know why, but it applies to the ladies. Nature's that way. woman comes in. She's premenopausal. Her hair's falling out. She can't understand it. Or her fingernails are cracking, chipping, splitting, peeling, layering back, as it's called. Many of those women, I'm not going to tell you all of them, but I'd say the majority, 
low stomach acid, and that means they're not digesting their protein into amino acids, and amino acids are the building blocks of human protein, and nails and hair, they're almost entirely amino acid, and so what the body does is says, oh, look, uh, we just haven't got enough amino acids to go around here, and you can live a long time without your fingernails or your hair, so we're just going to let that go. Um, that's the telltale sign in ladies before menopause, and it doesn't apply to guys at that age. I don't know why it's not there, but, but it's always one or the other. It's never both. Hmm. And um, the last question is, and I found this really intriguing in the book, is the fact that we've known a lot of this stuff for such a long time, but yet it, it, it's as if it's been buried or kept from us. The fact that uh, I believe there were some reports done on low stomach acid relating to certain disease or disease states. And I remember in the beginning of your book, you mentioned asthma and how you were able to help children with asthma who had, and it was all linked to low stomach production. But talk about how low stomach production, low stomach acid production can actually produce different things like asthma. And I believe you had some autoimmune diseases in there. I think it was uh, rheumatoid arthritis, osteoarthritis, and, and different conditions. But how does stomach acid relate to those conditions? Different ways. Uh, let's start with the rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, our book cites, and the, the citations are all in the book, folks, for those of you who are scientifically inclined. It cites six different European studies, six of them. And notice none of them was done in the United States. They're really that interesting. A lot of the natural medicine research is done overseas. But it was done in good universities and stuff over there. And those six studies found, all found, 100% of them found, that people with rheumatoid arthritis have low stomach acid. Huh. And funny thing, they found that if they had those people with low stomach acid start taking the hydrochloric acid pepsin with meals, during the meals, not before and not after either because it will float on top of the stomach and fire back at you and give you heartburn. So it's got to be mixed up with a meal. Anyway, if they had them take hydrochloric acid, their rheumatoid arthritis symptoms were less. Now, notice I did not say that their rheumatoid arthritis was cured, but I did say these studies found their rheumatoid arthritis symptoms were less. Okay, what's that doing? Well, there's some genius professor who's no longer, no longer with us who's from Northern Carolina, and he was able to identify that rheumatoid arthritis is associated with a certain organism, a little bacteria. I'm sorry, in his case it was an amoebae, not a bacteria. I'm sorry. And if he had people take the right kind of medicine to kill those amoebes, I'm sorry, the rheumatoid, I'm not sorry, actually, the rheumatoid arthritis went away, that's it, gone. Okay, well, how come they got those amoebes? Well, funny thing, but if we eat amoebe-laden food and our, food, our stomachs are making a 16-year-old quantity of hydrochloric acid, damn, it kills them all. It's not going to mm -hmm. get into our body anywhere and give us rheumatoid arthritis. But... If we got low stomach acid, those little critters are just going to be able to creep into the person's body and give them rheumatoid arthritis. And if anybody thinks this is all full of it, you all need to go read a book by Thomas McPherson Brown. You can just put Thomas Brown into your used book search engine, and you'll find his book for $2. It's called The Road Back. He was head of one of the departments at one of the medical schools back east, and he found that by giving people the common antibiotic at that time, tetracycline, that, oh, my goodness, it would bring their rheumatoid arthritis almost under control. And, in fact, under control unless they quit taking it, in which case it came back, which means it was inhibiting an organism but not killing it completely like the other professor found. So guess what? we got another microorganism that's allowed to get into the body and spread because of low stomach acid, and that's how they get the rheumatoid arthritis. And I'm sure there are other, and by the way, folks, that is for real. The Road Back by Thomas McPherson Brown. Take a look at that. Now, I'm not a big advocate of tetracycline, but if a person's really suffering uh, with rheumatoid arthritis, it's a good stopgap until we bring some of the natural medicine in, other natural medicine in. So that's one way where low stomach acid can help us get sick, just simply because it allows germs through that wouldn't make it through otherwise into our systems. And there we go. Now, in the case of the asthma, it's a different story. A stomach that doesn't make acid, the same cells that are supposed to make acid, I said it's supposed to, 
uh, also supposed to, if that's a word, uh, make a combining factor for vitamin B12. Um, it's little known, but vitamin B12 is the only essential to life nutrient that's not going to get in if you don't have this combining factor. Now, nobody needs a combining factor for vitamin B6 or vitamin C or vitamin E or any of the minerals or any of the amino acids or anything like that. As long as the food is all digested up into, into these teeny molecules, you just get the body just absorbs those molecules and in they go. But somebody discovered back in the 20s when they were researching a disease called pernicious anemia that all those people didn't have any stomach acid. Hmm. And the same cells that's supposed to make the acid make this combining factor. If you want to look it up, it's called intrinsic factor. I don't make up the names. I don't know why they called it intrinsic. But anyway, and this intrinsic factor kind of grabs onto the B12, and then once it's grabbed onto the B12 firmly, then the intestinal cells can grab onto the combining factor and tow the B12 in with it, and now we got B12 in our bodies. All right, go back to that stomach that isn't working. It not only isn't making hydrochloric acid pepsin, it also isn't making this intrinsic factor, combining factor, so we can't get vitamin B12 into our systems. And vitamin B12 is a big help for little kids with asthma. Um, so that's where the connection is there. It's because the B12 can't get in. But back in the day, in the 20s, people were literally dying of anemia because to, it was called pernicious anemia. It was so pernicious it made you dead. And then some, again, genius researcher, figured out that this intrinsic factor was not being made, just like the stomach acid wasn't being made, and the intrinsic factor gets glommed onto B12 and helped it get in the body. So they started giving people with pernicious anemia shots of B12, and oh my goodness, they didn't die and their anemia went away. Because anemia, one of the many factors needed to make blood, anemia just means low blood, uh, low blood count. One of the many factors to make a blood count is vitamin B12, and without that, he just got more and more anemic and dropped dead prematurely. So there you go, sir. Yeah. Wow, it's so funny how the uh, parts always equal to the whole. Just just simple little things like just low stomach acid can bring about all these different things. I My mind is officially blown, Dr. Wright. So oh, come <laughs> on now, Darren. <laughs> I, I know just, you it, talk to a lot of people about stuff. And the, yeah, but it's just so things. intriguing about this, this low stomach acid, how, you know, just taking care of your stomach and taking care of the acid will help so many um, different things. But I've been waiting on this interview, and I really wanted to thank you for being on. And um, like I said, my mind is officially blown because this gives me so much more to, to think about. But uh, thank you for being on. Darren, yeah, do you have I'm time not... for me to throw in just one thing for, for people who are listening? One thing we yeah, have sure do. I was going to ask you if you had anything else to say, so go ahead. Go right ahead. Yeah, I've got to throw this one in. Um, everybody, don't take acid-blocking medication. Don't do it. Don't do it. Well, I tell people that in my office. They say, well, Doc, what am I going to do just in case I get some heartburn if I don't can't take those acid-blocking medications? All right, folks, you go on down to the natural food store. And what they have there are capsule, um, capsules and tablets. You can Actually, I'm wrong. It's tablets. You've got to chew it up. Tablets that contain all natural stuff that when you chew up two or three of them and swallow it, it literally floats on top of the stomach contents. Now, it floats on top, which means it doesn't get in there and interfere with the digestive process. It floats on top, but when it's floating on top, the acid can't get back through it up into your esophagus and give you heartburn. Now, they got one of those in the big box drugstores, too, but it's all full of aluminum. And one thing we don't want is we don't want aluminum getting into our guts and getting absorbed into the system. We don't want that. So you don't use the one in the, in the big box drugstore. In the health food stores... There's only one company that's smart enough to do this. I am not affiliated with them. I'm not connected with them. They don't pay me a thing, and I won't mention what the company name is. But the name of their product is Refluxin, like Reflux, R-E-F-L-U-X-I-N. Refluxin. 
And so, folks, please, please, please get off of the acid blockers. Quit blocking the digestion. Be as well-nourished as you can. If you got these problems, see a doctor who's skilled and knowledgeable in natural medicine. Uh, very fortunately, there's some in every state, and you can find one if you just get diligent and look for them. Um, anyway, and then get some of this reflux and stuff. You can get that at the natural food store. You can get it at compounding pharmacies. You can get it online at the Tahoma Dispensary. I'm a, we're at Tahoma Clinic, and we've got a thing called the Dispensary, which is just like a, it's an, a legal name for a health food store attached to a doctor's offices. They can get this refluxin, so that way they can not have heartburn and not take acid blockers and be healthier for it. Yeah, yeah. That's the last thing I had to say, sir. Yeah, um, Dr. Wright, um, for those of us who want to know what our stomach acid is, what's the name of the test? Okay. Um, gastric analysis by radiotelemetry is the official long name. Um, what that means is you swallow a little capsule. It's about, it's about, about the size of a, actually a multiple vitamin capsule. But it's rounded and plastic and can be swallowed easy. And there's a little hole in the end. And once it gets down the stomach, the acid, the, the stomach juices, I should say, get into it. And this is invented by some real smart German engineer, which gave it another uh, name that I'll tell you in a moment. Um, anyway, it gets in there, and there's a little teeny acid-sensitive electrode and a little teeny FM radio transmitter. And... It sends a signal to a computer screen that's sitting right in front of you, and you can watch. Oh, there's the pH at the bottom of the screen of two, and now you just swallow the challenge of bicarbonate of soda, and the pH scoots right on up to seven or eight, and it should come back down to normal in 20 minutes or less five times in a row. And I got that from an article published by five universities up in Canada in 1978 that were determining the normal what a normal stomach can do and then comparing it uh, to other other people's tests. So since it was a real smart German engineer and it was in Heidelberg, Germany, it also gets called the Heidelberg capsule test, but that's not as explanatory as gastric analysis by this radio telemetry system. And um, quite a number of natural medicine doctors have those. We got one out here at Tahoma Clinic and I'm sure they're scattered around the country at natural, natural medicine doctors' offices. People can call the doctor's office and ask them. Mm-hmm. Great, Doctor Wright. Thank you so much for being on, man. Enjoy your Friday. I really, really enjoyed this uh, interview with you. Well, thank you so much for asking me to be on, Darren. Because uh, it sounds like you have the same kind of goal I have, and that is to get the information out to folks so that they can take care of themselves not just health-wise, but in many ways. Yeah, we have the same goal. So, again, thank you for being on, man, and have a great evening. You too, sir. Bye now. Take care. All right, good interview. And for those of you who are might have joined in late, you can always listen to all the shows on through iTunes. If you're a subscriber of iTunes, which I know many of you are, just go to iTunes and look up Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio, and you can subscribe there And every show that comes out. You can download that to your iPod, or you can go through blogtalkradio.com and look for my show, Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio, and you'll have access to the shows there as well. So I believe next week I'm going to be recording interviews. I think from now on I might do some live shows, and then most of the shows are going to be recorded through Skype. But pay attention to October. We're going to have some really good interviews. A lot of good people are coming on, and it's not going to be two shows a week. I got behind a little bit due to a death in my family. My uncle passed away and wasn't able to do the scheduling uh, as I had hoped, but there are some people that are going to be coming on, so I think I'm going to drip them, so to speak, uh, once a week, and uh, there will be some really, really good shows. And in November, um, I'll start working on next week, and there's a lot of people that I want to get on in November, and then, of course, on December. I usually take all of December off just to kind of recharge my batteries, get the schedule uh, intact for the coming new year. And then there are some things that I'm going to be doing within the new year as well that are really going to kind of 
put me out a little bit um, more and give you guys a little bit more things to think about in the health and wellness sphere. And also, uh, I've been talking about my new website, so hopefully that'll be debuting soon. And you'll see kind of where I'm going with all of this because it's been a total evolution for me from when I first started until right now. So stick with me. Share the show with your friends. There's a lot to learn on all of these shows. And if you are having any issues with your health, the first thing is check your thoughts. And then the second thing is learn how to take responsibility for your own health. No one knows your body more than you do. So again, Friday night, peace and love. I'm out. I'm going to watch Luke Cage, which is on Netflix. So thank you for listening. Peace and love. Good night.